0: This morning, we are delighted to welcome Daniel Dorman, who's going to be sharing with us from God's Word. Daniel and Fiona have been part of our Courtright congregation for about a year and a half. And we've had the privilege of being led by them many times in worship, and we're delighted to have Daniel lead us in the Word this morning. So Daniel, I want to invite you to come up, and I'd love to pray for you. Abby, thank you for Daniel and Fiona. We thank you for the gift that they are to our community. We pray that you would fill Daniel with your Holy Spirit and that you would speak your truth through him. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the word that you would have for us this morning. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. You gotta love when the mic works right away. Thanks, tech team. It's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here this morning, uh, just to worship with you all, but also a particular uh, pleasure to look into God's Word with you. When uh, they, they sent out the, the sort of um, teaser, the question that was supposed to, to guide or suggest the topic for the, the summer sermons... Uh, Of course, you may have heard last week, Alex brought up that it's this this theme of mentorship or the passing on of wisdom. And one of the questions that they asked the, the potential speakers was, what is the wisdom that is to be passed on? What is the wisdom that we are meant to pass on and what is it that we are meant to live out ourselves? And so this week, I think we'll focus a little bit more maybe on the the goal, that end of mentorship rather than on the process of mentorship. So with that in mind, let's pray for God to be among us again. Father, be near us as we look into your word. Would you build us up in wisdom and help us to know your will? Would you encourage us and enliven us by your spirit to live into all that you have called us? Admonish us for the ways we have lost hold of your truth. Help us to be light to the world around us that so desperately needs your word and your wisdom. Amen. So this morning we'll jump around a a little bit in the book of Ephesians, but our sort of first passage, our, our key passage comes from Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. I think we it says this look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is and i think read on their own just these 3 verses they they form this beautiful exhortation to wisdom They form even an encouragement, I think, to to cultural discernment. Paul is telling the Ephesians, even in the world around them that is broken, to seek to live wisely. But also read on their own, taken out of the context of the book of Ephesians, these verses could seem somewhat cryptic, even somewhat empty. Right? You'd be forgiven after reading just these three verses for asking, well, that's great, but how do I know what the will of the Lord is? How do I become wise? Or maybe on the other side of it, you're a little bit more like me, and you pride yourself a little too much on the thick books you have on your bookshelf, and you hear this exhortation to wisdom, and you, you maybe are just a little bit presumptuous. You know, thanks, Paul good one. I'll I'll take it from here. But Paul doesn't leave us either presumptuous or with unanswered questions. He doesn't leave us on our own grasping to know what wisdom is, and he doesn't allow us to impose our own definitions of wisdom onto his exhortation. When we read the whole book of Ephesians, we realize that the passage we've just read doesn't stand alone at all, but is more like the climactic recurrence of a theme in a symphony. And by no means do I know classical music well, but I understand that classical pieces are created by weaving together and repeating and modulating different musical themes or sections of melody, and the result is a beautifully unified whole. And the book of Ephesians, actually many of Paul's letters, are structured in this way. The themes weave together, building upon each other, and clarifying and refining the ideas and the terms with each repetition. It's a beautifully logical, but also complex and artful structure. It's most commonly that analogy, the analogy of a symphony, um, is most commonly used in the book of Romans, but I think it works quite well of Ephesians 2. So to give you something of an outline so you can know what to expect, you can track a little bit throughout the, the message today, my hope is to pick out a few key places where the theme of wisdom or, or foolishness or unwisdom arises, Right, these melodies of what it is to be wise or unwise, and then out of those, we want to formulate a couple simple definitions. A couple simple definitions to under, help us understand what the will of the Lord is and to help us be wise even in wicked days. So the first place we're going to jump in is in Ephesians 4. It's quite a few verses, so um, follow along on the screen or if you have a Bible, that's great too. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 23. It says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord Two words, two seemingly simple words, but on reflection, I think that they are arguably the two most shockingly countercultural words you could speak in 21st century Canada. Quite possibly the most offensive words you could speak to our culture. In many ways, they are two words that, that almost cut the legs out of the foundation of our modern culture our modern secular culture. And you may have picked up on it from my intonation as I read through, but I think that those two words are deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Because I would argue that one of the very central ideas of the modern world is that our desires, our emotions, our hearts, we sometimes say, cannot deceive us. There's these familiar taglines that we hear, right? Trust in your heart. Listen to what's inside of you. Your heart will guide you. These lines sound familiar because we hear them all the time, right? As modern people, when we seek to decide what is true, what is real, what is good, when we seek to decide if something is right or wrong, we look inside of us. We're told to look into our hearts, And by that, I think we often really mean just ask your desires. Writing almost uh, 150 years ago, the Russian author Dostoevsky gave a, a brilliant diagnosis of this modern trend, this modern basis to culture. He puts it in the mouth of this old elder monk named Father Zosima, and Father Zosima says this, you have desires, and so satisfy them. Don't be afraid of satisfying them, and even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world. And so if that was true in 1870 Russia, it's only exponentially more true of 21st century Canada. Right? We hear the lines all the time, be true to yourself. It's a truism of our modern culture, but I think more often than not, what we mean by that is make sure you're living in line with your desires. Make sure you're living in line with your feelings. And it goes one step further than that because for our culture, for many of us, our desires actually define our identity. And this is where it gets tricky, because, specifically in our culture, our sexual desires define our identity. To the modern person, your sexual identity is your identity. Right? Our culture says that if you want to be authentic, if you want to be liberated, if you want to be free, you need to follow your every desire. problem with that is is this that where secular culture says that your desires should direct you and define you scripture says that your desires may deceive you and then destroy you where secular culture says that your desires will liberate you scripture says that your desires may enslave you well the world around us says that uncritically following your desires will make you feel whole. Scripture says that uncritically trusting your desires will rob you of peace. Our culture says that if you want to be enlightened, follow your desires. Scripture says that if you follow your desires, your mind will be darkened and your heart will be hardened and you'll be alienated from the life of God to use Paul's language? Fiona, could I get the T that I left over there? Thanks. I think when we... Thank you. You think I forgot it, but that was a strategic break in the tension. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. It was not strategic. I forgot it. But, I'll drink it later. When we see this sharp antipathy between our secular culture and the teachings of Scripture, I think this is when we can understand why in Ephesians 5.17, Paul says that the days are evil. And we can realize that insofar as our culture idolizes desire that we, too, are living in broken times. One more thing to demonstrate, this idea. I don't know if you've ever been in a, uh, a discussion or perhaps a polite debate, and maybe even an argument of some kind, and it comes to a, an abrupt end when one person says, well, I just feel that that's right, or I just feel that that's wrong. And, it's, and it's, you, you reach an impasse at that moment often in our culture, in the world around us, because our emotions, our feelings, are our ethical first principles. Right? Our emotions, our intuitions, our desires are actually how we decide what's good or what's bad. The philosopher, brilliant philosopher and ethicist Alistair MacIntyre, coined the term emotivism. Emotivism being this modern philosophy, this modern ethic, where we decide what's good, we decide what's bad, we decide what's right or wrong based on how we feel towards something. Again, our desires have become both the foundation of our identity and our standard of goodness and of truth. We idolize desire. We place our desires where God ought to be. Describing this phenomenon in a different book, a different New Testament book, in Philippians 3.19, Paul says to Christians who have fallen away from faith that their God is in their belly, which I think is a poetic way of saying their God is their appetites, their God is their desires. I won't go back and and reread all of the, 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 the scriptures from Ephesians 4 that I've read, but I would encourage you to do so at some point maybe in the coming day or in the coming week and just look out for its logical structure because it's incredibly tightly knit. There's lots of different terms you could sub in, but the approximate structure of, of Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 23 that we read is this. It says... Unwisdom comes from hard heartedness. Hard heartedness comes from sensuality. Sensuality comes from deceitful desires. And so the root of unwisdom, the beginning of that unwisdom, is listening to lying desires. So that's our, our first simple definition. When it, I wouldn't claim that this is a definition of wisdom or unwisdom. Generally, I wouldn't even claim that it's Paul's definition, but just perhaps in the passages that we are going to look at today. And I use the term unwisdom even though it's a little bit more awkward because in the Greek, it's literally a-sophia, sophia being wisdom, a being negation. So it's, it's literally to negate wisdom. To negate wisdom or unwisdom is to uncritically follow your desires. Right? Or we might say to uncritically listen to your heart. To uncritically assume that your fallen intuitions are an unimpeachable standard of goodness or truth. Similar to the passage that we already read in Ephesians 2.1, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And I wanted to introduce this this recurrence of the theme, this melody, as well, particularly because Paul uses the word passions, which is a significant word in in Scripture and in the the ancient world generally. If you read any ancient literature, Greek or Roman literature, and you come across someone described as passionate, there's actually a quite good chance that that person is both acting irrationally and is a danger to themselves or someone around them. This is different than the way we use the term, right? Think Romeo of, of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. So not just Greek, but even into to other literature of a, of a culture much closer to our own. There's a point when one of Romeo's buddies—I forget his name—he says, "Madman, passion, Romeo." Madman, passion, Romeo. So, passion is conceived of as this destructive and irrational force, right? Something that ought to be controlled, something that ought to be tempered by the mind, tempered by reason, by understanding. And then into today, if someone is called passionate, the ratio's probably reversed, right? It's almost certainly a compliment by which we mean something like that they're driven or, or motivated by what's inside of them, and that's by no means a bad thing, by the way. But nonetheless, I think the history of the word is interesting. Passions, our deep desires or emotions, went from something that needed to be tamed by reason, something associated with the flesh, with our sinful, fallen nature, to something now that is meant to guide our lives and inform our identity, right? Because right now, we're, not, we're all supposed to have passions. We're all supposed to be passionate about something, and that passion is supposed to drive us into our careers or our callings, the things that we spend most of our lives doing. If you ask the, uh, the average person, you would say that that's supposed to be informed by your passions. I think in some ways, our, if in our culture, the world around us, people are supposed to figure out who they are. They're supposed to find, again, their identity and what they're passionate about. And I think that this results in a couple different things in our culture, particularly for young people. I think it places an undue burden to find the meaning of your life inside of you. An undue burden to find your identity in what you happened to like. I think there's two results of this for, for many of us, in that the first is that we end up uncritically following our passions into unworthy callings. Right? Because we forget that our desires can lie to us, we forget that our passions can lie to us, and we get sent down the wrong road. The second and I think this one is actually more common, is that we, we crack under the burden of trying to conjure up meaning for our lives out of nowhere, out of our passions that may or may not exist. Right? Like I, I can picture a young person saying, I just don't know what I'm passionate about. I just don't know who I am. And I don't think that that's a fair burden to put on them. They were never meant And maybe you were never meant to discover your identity out of what you happened to like. Because our calling is to be like Christ. And here's where we get to the positive swing of this message. We are called to be like Christ, and we absolutely will be deeply satisfied when we seek Him, and when we seek to be like Him. The details are... Circumstance. The details are fluff. The details are what Paul calls a clanging gong. Your calling is to love like Jesus loved. That's the meaning of our lives. And that can be your rightly directed passion. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, it's the end of the passage we read earlier. It says that we are called to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's right there, you're calling, The meaning of your life is to be created after the likeness of God. Jesus is the likeness of God, and so your calling is to be like Jesus, to pursue righteousness and holiness. Another recurrence of this theme, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. We are called out of, uncritically trusting our desires. And we are called to look like Jesus, to humbly serve and sacrifice ourselves for others. So there's our second definition If unwisdom is to uncritically follow our desires, then wisdom is to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. Wisdom is to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. Before we go too much further, I just want to say that for maybe, I don't know how long I've been speaking, but for much of the time I've been speaking, you could probably qualify what I've been doing as railing against desires or emotions, railing against passions, however you'd say it. And I want to clarify that while trusting our fallen desires is the root of unwisdom, of foolishness, Christians are not opposed to emotions. Right? If we were Romans, if we were Stoic philosophers, that's the route we would, we would go. We would go with the wholesale rejection of our feelings. We would say that there is nothing valuable in them. But that isn't what Paul is saying, and that's certainly not what Christians have taught and believed through the centuries. Right, we don't need to ask God to turn off our passions or our desires or our emotions. We need to ask God to redeem our emotions and to redirect them to himself. To redirect our affections towards their worthy object. As Kristen prayed in the prayer of affection, to not thirst after things, or the prayer of confession, not affection. The prayer of confession, to redirect our thirst towards God, to not Seek to be satisfied by that which cannot satisfy. Paul calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What does that mean? I think that means praying something like this. God, I know in my mind that you are worthy of all my affection and all my desire and all my passion. Would you direct Would you redirect the things that I love so I can look like you, so I can serve the world around me and put on the new self? Well, how do we do that? How do we put on the new self? I think Paul gives us two very strong hints, and this is where maybe we get into almost a little bit of the process of mentorship, because both of the ways that Paul directs us to put on the new self, to redirect our desires, to redirect our passions, are through community. The first is to speak truth to each other. Ephesians 4.25 says this, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's not shocking. It's not revolutionary. The way that we put on the new self is to be deep in God's Word and to share it with each other. Drench yourself and those around you in the truths of Scripture so that when your desires lie to you because they will, you know the difference between the Word of God and your own fallen intuitions. Drench yourself and those around you in the truths of Scripture so that when your desires lie to you because they will, you know the difference between the Word of God and your own fallen intuitions or desires. The second one, and I love this one, and we'll do it again before we leave here, is to sing. That's the second way Paul asks us to put on the new self. The second way Paul calls us to become wise. And I admit when I first read through the book of Ephesians in preparation for today, I was somewhat confused. I was like, why after these profound exhortations to follow Jesus does Paul keep bringing up singing? It just it didn't feel quite like it made sense. It felt out of place. And then it clicked, right? It's why we do the weird sing-along thing on a weekly basis. Right? Have you ever noticed that, like, it's, it's lovely. I've, I've grown up with it. I've always done it. But have you ever noticed that we're the only place in culture that does weekly sing-alongs? It's kind of odd, but it, it, ha- it serves a purpose. There's a reason we persist in it, right? It's because through worship, as we choose to spend time exalting God together, it reforms our desires, and the desires of the people around us as well as we sing corporately, as we sing to each other, not just to God, not exclusively to God. I put in here, worship is like emotional weightlifting. It trains your heart to feel what it ought to feel. It trains our heart to place our affections on the right thing. It reorders our desires. It helps us recognize the lie of our desires when something is going to undercut Christ in our life. It trains us not to listen to the lies, but it calls us to love and to worship Jesus, who is worthy of all honor and praise. So you heard it here first. We do the weird sing-along thing so that we can become wise. That was my attempt at a joke. Feel free to, there you go, thank you. There's actually a lovely song that we'll finish with and one of the lines is, "'God, give me passion for your purity.'" And so we'll get to do that in a moment. Recap, simple definitions that I hope you can take with you maybe that you'll repeat to a family member in the car on the way home, Uh, unwisdom is to uncritically follow your desires. Wisdom is to follow Jesus into sacrificial love and humility. Let's pray together. Father God, would these be more than words? Would your spirit be among us? We thank you for the ways that you do move in our hearts, that you've already been with us this morning, but you, we ask you to increase here. We ask you to redirect us, to show us the places where our fallen desires are leading us away from you. Would you help us to commit to being a people of your word, commit to knowing your word so that we can tell the difference between our own intuitions and your voice? Would you help us to commit to being here together, that we might raise our voices together to you, that you might redirect our affections, that you might redirect our desires, and lead us to the full and satisfying life that it is to know you and to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.